welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Tonight again we take a few moments to dip into the book of Haggai, as we've done over the last week or so. And uh, for those of you who have forgotten or who weren't here, the, the scene is unfolding in 520 BC from August through to December. The people of Judah, having been allowed to return from Babylon to J- Jerusalem by the Edict of Cyrus, have now been there for 18 years and they have failed to rebuild the temple. What God had asked them to do, what God allowed them to return to do, they had not done what they, was required of them. So he raises up the prophet Haggai And through him, God says to them, please, 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 do what you should be doing. Please build my temple. To make that relevant for us today, who are obviously living post-Christ and this situation, what God would say to us is not to build a temple, but please, 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 let my kingdom come, let my will be done in your life as I have ordained in heaven. That we are to be about his kingdom building. God said through Haggai, as he would say to us, the reason that their life is somewhat empty, the reason that their life is unfulfilled, has a sense that everything is not as it should be or isn't quite right, is because my temple lies in ruin. It is because although you are people who call upon my name and say I am your God, you are not doing the primary thing that I have called you to do. This is a tough book. This is a hard-hitting book, and we're going to read about nine verses from chapter two, and it's one of those classic things that this passage was not written to us, but it was written for us, and if we don't understand some of the language around that, which is totally understandable, but when we do unpack it, I'm just going to be upfront and say, this is some tough stuff. So being faithful to unpacking the the book in in rote, we're just going to have a look at it. So we're going to read from chapter two, verses 10 through to the uh, 19, and it says this, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says, ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew or wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hand with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord." From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed in the barn? 
Until now, the wine, the fig, the tree, the pomegranate, and the olive oil have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Not a straightforward, oh yes, easy to understand what, what that means. Honesty with God is always the best policy because we can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that we can fool other people and get away with it. That we can live our lives in a way that look good, that, good, that look holy, that look upright, but behind the veneer, there is something different going on. We can fool most of the people most of the time. Jesus challenged, and so did his cousin John the Baptist, he challenged the Pharisees about their Pharisaical life, that everything looked good on the outside, but inside they were pretty rotten. He challenged them over the hypocrisy. He challenged them over their lack of purity inwardly. When he spoke the seven woes to the Pharisees, this is what it's about. The inside and the outside did not match up. It is very easy to believe that no one else can see or understand our mistakes, our sins, or our straightforward disobedience. And yet God sees everything. We read in Joshua 7 that Archon stole a gold cup, hiding it in a bag, thinking that there would be no consequences and no one would know. Well, in other words, his adage was, what they don't know doesn't do them any harm. But his deliberate misintention, his deliberate stealing, had dramatic consequences for his family and the whole of Israel. His whole family died because of his sin. In the New Testament, the apostle was writing to the early church in Corinth, and there was a man there who was having an incestuous relationship with someone from his family with his stepmother, in this case it was, and Paul's instruction was harsh, it was clear. He said, expel the moral, the immoral brother so that they can be restored. Our sin has consequences way beyond what we can really imagine. Haggai 2 is a very serious and challenging portion of scripture. <clears throat> Mark Twain which only Mark Twain could do, once wrote to 12 of his friends, and he wrote to them, he said this, flee because all is discovered. All 12 of those friends left town within 24 hours. He did not have anything on them, he just wanted to try out what would happen. That's what he said, flee, all is discovered, and they all disappeared. This passage is dealing with sin and holiness and the importance of consecration before God. As they are looking to rebuild the temple, there is something else going on here. They are rebuilding spiritually. And there is a much deeper challenge going on in this book, rather than just the promise of something rebuilt, whether it be a building or a temple. The prophet is talking about rebuilding people and their relationship with God. Rebuilding a reconsecrated holy life. As unpopular as this may be in the 21st century, the words sanctification and holiness are still important and they are still really non-negotiable. As we go through this book, we cannot avoid or sidestep the issue of holiness and the call to be a holy people. God is inviting the reader. God is inviting the listener to a deeper, more personal life with him. He says, let me <clears throat> make you a holy people. Let me make you my people who are holy. And as we are using temple language, as we are using temple imagery here, 
let us remind ourselves of what Peter said to us in the New Testament. He says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are not all the same. We do not all do the same things. We do not all look the same. We do not speak the same way. We are all unique and special in his face, but we are a living community, different but knit together and knit together in holiness. Because what we do matters. If you are a Christian here tonight, what you do has profound effect on other people. And we will unpack that in a few moments. You see, for some of us, holiness can be something, ah, I don't even want to talk about it. It can be a form of Christian piousness that for the upper echelons, for the really spiritual people. We fear that becoming holy will turn us into those types of Christians who become detached from the realities of life. We're afraid that embracing or talking even about holiness means that we will have to reject those who don't share our beliefs. Worse, that this call to a holy life can feel like an attack on our own personal identity. I want to do what I want to do. It attacks who we are. If we choose to align our hearts towards the pursuit of a holy life, would that mean us giving up some of the things that we enjoy doing now? The answer is yes. There's no way that we can slice it probably any other way. At some point in our Christian journey, many of us find ourselves at crossroads. And one of these crossroads is with the battle we have to, do, to desire more of God and wanting to honor him and his commands, but also feel a certain level of contract a conflict, I should say, in trying to love Jesus and pursue Jesus whilst trying to remain authentic and relatable to those who have yet to accept him. And of course, the call to holiness comes the very real possibility that we will have to make some very important life decisions. I actually believe with all my heart that we need to be careful that we don't mix up authenticity and holiness. So often we get caught up in the buzz of, oh, we want to be authentic people, absolutely. But authenticity and holiness actually go together. They are not mutually exclusive. The trend towards authenticity in the church is a good thing, a healthy thing, a biblical pursuit, but it doesn't mean that we aren't also supposed to be pursuing holiness. One writer puts it like this, and I absolutely love this. Authenticity doesn't mean committing sin so that the people think that we're relatable. So many people have sat in front of me and we've talked around issues of pastoral nature with them. And it's like, well, I can't, can't do that because I want to be authentic to myself. You know, if we're authentic to ourselves, sometimes that is contradictory to being a holy people and making right decisions. Sometimes it's like, hey, I want to do what I want to do, so don't tell me to be holy. So this passage deals with the call to holiness in a very unique and powerful way. <clears throat> and we're going to see a few things, and I'll go through these quite quickly. It says, first of all, it says here in verse 12, if someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? And the answer is no. 
first of all, and this has two parts, first of all, personal holiness is not transferable. It is not a transferable quality. We cannot make other people holy. We can impact and influence them, but we cannot make them holy. The inherent question that Haggai is asking the priests here is, can you transfer your holiness to another person? And the answer, as we all know, is unequivocally no. For the best part of 40 years of my Christian life, I have prayed for my friends and some members of my family to be saved. But alas, nothing has changed in this situation. And I would do all that I could to, tr- to change them, to transfer them into the kingdom. But I can't. And my call is to still to be there, to pray for them, to influence them, to be a holy person in the midst of them so that something of that eventually will challenge them to have a changed life themselves. I cannot take away their free will and force them in the kingdom. It is not possible for us to make people holy. As I said, we can demonstrate holiness and encourage them, but we can't. But we have to pray and we have to live lives that represent something of the, the awesomeness and the flavor of who God is. To these, to these priests, as they look back, Haggai is saying to them, can you make this community of Israel holy? And sadly, the Answer comes back, no, you can't. As I said, some of us would do anything, anything at all to see some of our members, the members of our family saved. Like Paul says in Romans 9 to 11, where he talks about Israel, he says, we too would have given ourselves so that our families would find peace. Holiness is not transferable, but also, whilst personal holiness cannot be transferred, transferred even, we who are saved cannot pass the responsibility of our holiness onto somebody else. We have to take personal responsibility for our own holiness. We cannot live on the holiness of our husband, our wife, our partner, our parents, our kids. We have to take responsibility for ourselves. We cannot blame other people for the state of our lives. There is no blame game going on here in this situation. Sometimes we hide behind our limp. Sometimes, well, this was done to me, or that was done to me, or this happened in my situation, and how tragic those things may be, and how damaging and life-shaping they were, still we have to live in the light of that, ask God to move into our situation, and ultimately take responsibility for our own personal holiness. Yeah, you don't know what I've been through. Absolutely, I don't. God does. You don't know what I've been through. And we have to take responsibility. You know, Adam tried to blame his wife, and it didn't work then, and it didn't work, doesn't work now. One of the good changes that has come about in the wider church over the past 20 years, 20, 30 years maybe, has been the emphasis on community. And we're all very comfortable with phrases like faith community. And this has been really, really good. But as we constantly talk about being part of a community, as we talk about being a people together in the face of the real spirit of individualism in our country, we have to guard against one thing. If we overemphasize community in a way that negates the need for personal holiness, we are doing people an injustice and we are not preaching a full gospel. Community is wonderful. It is so important to what we're about, but it doesn't negate personal responsibility. One of the Christian fathers over the last 
100 years is a guy called A.W. Tozer. And I find these following words that he, he says incredibly challenging. He says, every man is as holy as he really wants to be. Ooh. <coughs> Slightly different. The famous British-Canadian writer J.I. Packer says, any idea of, being, of getting beyond conflict outward or inward in our pursuit of holiness in this world is an escapist dream. We're a people not enslaved to sin, but we labor to overcome it. And if we are not laboring to overcome it, we will be consumed by it. If we are not laboring to find joy in Christ, we will be grasping for joys in goods that only depletes us of joy. Secondly, sin is infectious. Verse 13 says this. Then Haggai says, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied. It becomes defiled. So not only can we not make people holy, sin is like a virus that spreads. All our goodness won't make people good, but our sin will infect other people. Often the 21st century church, especially in the first world, has become very weary about talking about things like this because we are individuals in a consumer society and we all have the right to make our own choices and other people asking us where we are with God is an extremely invasive and personal question and very often people want to say, back off. You can't ask me. Yes, we can. Continues a little bit like this. Well, it is no one's business to ask me. It's no one else's business how I work out my relationship with God. It is no one else's business what I do in private or what I do in public because those two are separate issues. You know, others may see your public life, but what happens in my private life is up to you and me and no one else. That is not biblical teaching. <clears throat> Not according to the community being built by Christ, it isn't. And although this is an unpopular and pleasant question, can I ask you a question? How are you and God tonight? How are you and God tonight? I'll come to myself in a few moments. And How are we doing with the Savior of the world? He who came... I thought communion was so good and the words, that was the simplicity of those words was so powerful. He who came and died and took our place. You know, a few weeks ago, I think it was on a Sunday morning, I was, I was having a bit of a rant, I think it was, about talking about people talk about nostalgia and the good old days and all that. You know, I don't remember the good old days being as good as people remember them to be and all that sort of stuff. But we have that sort of nostalgia for, for yesteryear, for things back there. But one thing that I do miss from the days of when I was a young Christian and in, in, the, uh, in the early, uh, when I was, a, I nearly said when I was a young Christian in the early 20s, I didn't mean it like that. When I was a young Christian in my whew, early 20s, it was deemed good. It was deemed acceptable that if you were in a group together, if you were walking to God with each other as a faith community and you were young Christians together and you knew each other and you had some sort of sense of friendship with that person, it was totally acceptable for you to walk up to them and say, how are you and God doing? It was not seen as somebody sticking their nose in or being a busybody. It was a genuine concern for 
how are you and God doing? And I often had people come to me and say, Chris, how are you doing? And I found it so helpful. It allowed me to recalibrate. It allowed me to think again, well, how am I doing? It wasn't met with a silent, mind your own business, it's nothing to do with you response, but rather seen as genuine concern. Probably in my role, I could walk up to most people today and say, hey, how are you and God doing? But outside of that, I'm not sure that many people would get away with it. (coughs) Therefore, let me run the risk of upsetting some here today and ask you that question again. How are you and God getting on? When no one else is watching in the darkness of the night, when we think we can get away with it, how are we really, really doing? How am I? getting on with God. <coughs> I came across an incredible quote this very week. In fact, talking about honesty and openness, it was my wife who brought it to my attention. And it's by a Frenchman by the name of Andre Malreux. He was a French novelist, an art theorist. I don't even know what an art theorist is. But he was a government minister post-war. And he says this, man is not what he thinks he is. He is what he hides. Man is not what he thinks he is, but he is what he hides. Any renewal, any fresh move of God, any awakening, whatever language, excuse me, we want to use, must be birthed in simply more than people coming to church or volunteering. Not that those are, are, are wrong in any sense, they are wonderful, but a genuine move of the Spirit of God, as spoken about and as desired by the the God through the prophet Isaiah to these returning people, evidences itself in your life and my life getting right with God. Not perfect, but people who walk before the cross every day and who are willing to accept the challenge of how are you and God doing today? You know, I ask because our individual lives before God impacts each other in our faith community. The person sitting in front of you is affected by your life. The person to your side, the person behind, the person you came with, the person you don't know. If we're in a faith community, in a region, or like this, or in a church like this, our sin affects other people. It is infectious. We cannot live our lives as silo. You know the biggest challenge that I have? Scares me witless sometimes, is that my life before God has an impact on you and it challenges me. There is no such thing as public and private faith. Our faith may be personal, but it is never private, unless this private faith, which only by its very nature you can have as an individual, unless this faith overflows into public consequences, changed behaviors, changed attitudes, and fruitful living, then there is a legitimate question to be asked, If it doesn't, then is it real faith? You can't ask that, yes you can. The Bible says where there is real faith, these things will follow. Changed lives, changed attitude. Yes, over time, not instant, we know that. No, this is not a call to instant. But over time, over period, over seasons, things have to change. Otherwise we have to ask, is it a real faith? God is raising up Haggai to ask us, how are you and God doing? Verse 14 is a very challenging subtext. 
says then, that says, then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and what are they, whatever they offer is defiled. It doesn't matter how much effort we put into our so-called relationship with God. If our worship, if our life is defiled or infiltrated by an attitude of secrecy and division, meaning he hasn't got all our attention, then I believe that he wants to talk with us. I believe that he is greatly, greatly concerned. We see this principle throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we see it especially very powerful in the Old Testament. And outwardly, initially, this is a really strange thing. This is a strange verse that we read. And probably if we've been around church, we'll understand a little bit. But initially, it's a really strange one. When David confesses his sin in Psalm 51, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, He says these things, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What? See, David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against her family. He had sinned against her husband. He had, the child of that union dies. He had sinned against Israel, against the whole religious system. He had sinned against his nation and his own fighting men. He had put them in real danger. He had put their lives in in jeopardy. And above all, he has Bathsheba's husband killed. And he says this thing, against you, you only have I sinned. Psalm 51 verse 4 clearly teaches us that when we are confronted with our unholiness, the only person that we need to go and really talk this through with initially is God himself. We're not fooling God. We may be fooling others. We may be pulling the wool over other people's eyes. But God says, first and foremost, it's me you're messing with. God puts himself in the frame as the number one person who is concerned about our holiness and wants us to change. God is saying, you think you're getting away with it? You think this is all happening off piece? No, it's against me you are doing these things. And I believe he wants to talk about this. You know, one of the, one of the dangers, I was going to say, of, of our job <laughs> is when we... Um, you speak on something, or when you're speaking on a series, very often what you, what you're talking about, some stuff can come out of your own life. And, um, and this happened to me really quite powerful this week. I was out of the office uh, from Monday through till Thursday, Thursday evening. So I knew I was back on Friday, so there was a number of people that I wanted to catch up with. So I just, just said, hey, listen, how about this? So we, we, I, I had scheduled to catch up with a number of people. When I woke up on Friday morning, I, <coughs> excuse me, I had a text that says, Chris, I can't make our 11 o'clock coffee. Apologies, let's reschedule. Ah, totally fine. It's good. No worries with that. Then I had another call about 8.30 that says, Chris, you know we're meeting at 9.30? I can't make it. I got a migraine. Okay. 9 o'clock's cancelled. 11 o'clock's cancelled. Then I had a text saying, you know we're supposed to be meeting at 12.15? We can't make it. I'm starting to get a bit paranoid now. Do I need to wash a bit more? Do I need to change my aftershave, change my shirt? What's happening? And so that's okay. At two o'clock, somebody said, you know, we're supposed to be getting together at 4.30. I can't make it. I'm going to be working overtime. I'm thinking, holy moly. But you know, I really believe with all my heart 
that God created a free day for him and I to talk. And we walked and we talked and he spoke to me and we discussed things. He didn't get everything right. I'm sure he made a few mistakes. But we had a really, really good day together and we talked about things that annoyed me or rankled me or things that probably rankled with him and we had a really good, a good time. I just think it's a bit weird, but just those, the things that came to my mind, the thoughts that came that I knew that he was challenging me over. I felt God say, let's chat. Chris, how's your life before God? Moving on. Our <coughs> actions carry consequences, good or bad. Verses 15 to 19 says these words. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, <clears throat> there were only 10. When anyone came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and the hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, <clears throat> the vine and the fig, the tree, the pomegranate, and the olive oil have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. From verse 15 on, this message changes direction somewhat, but one thing we will note and need to note, it was that God sent the mildew. He says, it was me. I sent the hail and the blight because you did not turn to me. Doesn't it amaze you that in a church this size, your holiness matters? Let me take this broader and wider. Our personal holy, holiness, I believe, is a big indicator of whether or not we will see revival or renewal again in our region, in our generation. You know, any revival, any renewal of the Spirit of God down through the ages, anywhere, anywhere in the world has been accompanied by a new sense of holiness, a new desire to walk right with God. So often we see holiness as a millstone around our neck, something to be avoided as a hindrance, something, as I said, the sidestep, or an inconvenience, rather than a freedom plan to life. This is what holiness is. Holiness gives us the freedom to live life as God has called us to be. You know, whilst running the risk of sounding like some 17th century puritanical preacher, holiness in our life, in the private areas of our life, still matters. The challenge of this passage, <clears throat> before we get to the blessing, is that when Haggai is defining what holiness looks like, he does so by saying it's not just personal purity or personal virtue. What this passage shows us is what God thinks are the consequences, or what God says, I should say, are the consequences of a holy life. And he says, when I came for 20, I got 10. When I came for 50, I got 20. What does that mean? This is what it means. It says, as we become the people who God wants us to be, as we become a holy people, God through the prophet here is saying that this will have an influence and affect the community in which we live. It is simple biblical economics that says one plus one with God means a whole lot more. That when we 
start to, as, as it were, embrace the, the challenge to holiness, it will have an impact on those areas around us. I believe it is biblically correct, it is exegetically correct to state that our holy and private consecrated lives lived afresh before God will transform our neighborhood where we live. That what we are looking through in this minor prophet is not just some private piety issue. Our holiness changes things in the world around us. That our quest for holiness becomes a quest for justice. Our desire to be truthful affects how we live in the public arena. That we not only want to be holy in private things, but we want to be holy in the public things. That we want to treat our neighbors properly. That we want to go the second mile with them. That we want justice for those who cannot speak up for themselves. That we want to be equitable people. We want to be fair and just people. That we want to pay our taxes on time and that we want to do everything right by our government that requires of us. You know, I not like paying taxes, but tough. That it affects not only this private sec- sector of my life, it starts to impact where we live and where we work. That justice becomes an issue. And God's saying to this people, you were not interested in justice because your private life was not where it was. You know, when we become or embrace the desire to be a holy people, we change the environment around us. And sometimes we get so caught up, and that is not wrong, with trying to save the environment when we can be a catalyst for changing our environment around us if we embrace the call to be a holy people. Cart on horse, the wrong way around sometimes. This is what he is saying here. Then verse 15 goes off on a tangent. Three times he says, give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. The children of Israel find themselves at a pivotal moment where things can change. There's a moment of discovery. There's a moment of, aha, if I change, if I choose to follow holiness. And you know, this is a tough passage in its core, but it is also inspiring and incredibly releasing because Haggai says things can change. Things can change. If you really desire, things can change. Not a call, as I said, to perfection, but a call to change and to change the trajectory of our life. And it says here, is there any seed left in the barn? Until now... The vine and the fig and the pomegranate olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. And in this strange verse, in this strange verse, we have the answer to the call to holiness. Musicians, please come and join me. We're going to wrap up. (coughs) Don't forget, this was not written to us, but it was written for us. It was written to people 520 years B.C., 2,006 years ago, 2,600 years ago. So how does this change come about? How does this, how do we facilitate that? The answer is there, is there any seed in the barn? What God is saying through this, what God is saying is this, bring what you've got. Even if you have the smallest, smallest desire in your life to live a holy life, 
then I can work with that. Even if you've got the, the, the smallest of breath to say, please, Lord, he will move in and he will help you. He is not asking us to be a people called to perfection, but he has called us to be a people on a pathway to holiness. And you know, in our, in our relationship with God, this might be, we might be going through a tough, difficult, torrid season. And we think, I don't know if I can go on. I don't even know if I'm bothered to go on. I don't know how long this flame is going to last. We may feel pressed down on all sides. We may even be overwhelmed by our sin. And you just think, Chris, if, you just start, if we're going to talk about that, I don't even know where to start to talk about my sin. But even in that response that says, I'd love to, God jumps in and he's there to help. Is there any seed in the barn? Is there any hope left? If there is, then he says there is hope. He just asks us to be honest with ourselves and honest with him and respond in a way. As we come and as we bring what we've got, God responds by saying that from this day forward, there can be change. It'll be hard. It'll be confrontational. It'll be challenging. It'll be all those things. But there can be change. There can be blessing. There can be transformation for us. But you know, if it's something that's probably, if it's something that's really not high on your agenda, not something that we feel we want to respond to now, but you know, he does leave us with that charge. Give careful thoughts to your way. So God leaves us with this, this thing. Is there any seed in the barn? If you just cry out and say, Lord, I am in such a mess, help. He is there. Transformation can take place. And <clears throat> if we think, well, <clears throat> I don't want to, that was great, that was fine, but I don't really want to respond to that, he would give us this closing statement. Take, take, take careful thought of your way. Because God is calling us to be a holy people and he is asking us to respond in light of what he says to us. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.